And it's time to get started, so let me say good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining the Calvary Community Church Sunday School class. We are, Em and I are now here on the East Coast. Thank you for those of us who, or those of you who are praying for us. God brought us safely here in a very interesting day of transport, especially at the airport and on the airplane. We'll talk about that story another time. But we're continuing on today in our study of the Answers Bible Curriculum moving chronologically through the Bible, and we now find ourselves in the books of Samuel. We moved on from the book of Judges, but we're still in the Judges period. Last time we looked at Ruth and the wonderful account of how God showed himself to be the great Redeemer, but today we're looking at God's call to Samuel. Oh, also, happy Mother's Day. Just want to say that officially, since everyone is here on the stream now. Uh, the passage, one of the passages will be kind of moving past today it has to do with mothers. We won't be camping there. Hannah's prayer and Hannah's experience has a lot to do with mothers, so hopefully maybe you can go back and look at that as part of your uh, Mother's Day observance. But we're talking more specifically about Samuel today. Now, our account is found at the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel. First and 2 Samuel were originally composed as one book, later split just for convenience, not an inspired split. But this history book, this book of Samuel, is a book filled with notable contrasts. It especially contrasts the proud and the humble before God. And we're going to see this already in the beginning of the book with what we're looking at today. When we hear about the last two judges in Israel, Eli and Samuel. Now how is it that these two judge deliverers, that God raised up both of them himself, how is it that they contrast so much? What did God do with Eli and with Samuel? And what can we learn when it comes to our own necessary living humbly before God? Even amid an ongoing, difficult, coronavirus quarantine situation. Yes, this is a situation where we need humility if we're going to walk rightly before God. So we need to hear what the Word of God has for us today and take it to heart. So let's ask God's blessing on this time of study. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and help me to be able to explain it accurately and helpfully. And Lord, I pray that the people would be attentive, all those who are listening today, so they would um, be very careful to observe what you are saying, not merely what I am saying, but Lord, what you say in your word, what the God of the universe says in his word. Lord, and I pray that we would all be encouraged, convicted, and transformed by it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please take your Bibles and open to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel appears right after the Old Testament books of Judges and Ruth. We're going to start in 1 Samuel, not at the very beginning, but actually at the beginning of chapter 2, right where we see the song of Hannah. This prayer song, this praise song, this prayer poem of Hannah, right at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at this song because I want us to see that theme that I talked about in just a moment ago about the contrast between the humble and the proud. Look at 1 Samuel 2 verses 1 to 10 where it says, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. That is Yahweh, covenant name there. My horn is exalted in Yahweh. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is no one holy like Yahweh. Indeed, there is no one besides you. Nor is there any rock like our God. 
Boast no more, so very proudly. Do not let arrogance come out of your mouth. For Yahweh is a God of knowledge, and with him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are shattered, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who were full hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry ceased to hunger. Even the barren gives birth to seven, but she who has many children languishes. Yahweh kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Yahweh makes poor and rich. He brings low, he also exalts. He raises the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with nobles and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth are the Lord's, or that is Yahweh's, and he set the world on them. He keeps the feet of his godly ones, but the wicked ones are silenced in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. Those who contend with Yahweh will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens, and Yahweh will judge the ends of the earth. And he will give strength to his king, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. One second here. I see I have to advance the slides in a little different way than I'm used to. Okay. There we go. Now we have a fair amount of text to cover today, so won't be able to look at this section very much in depth, but do notice the contrast that is presented between the humble and the proud. Whom does this text say God humbles and destroys? It is the proud, it is the great, it is the wicked. But whom does God exalt and bless? Well, it is the humble, it is the poor, it is the righteous. theme of the proud versus the humble and how God treats each of them. It's presented throughout the scripture, but especially here in the books of Samuel. Fundamentally, we hear in the scriptures again and again, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He will judge the haughty and bring them down, but he will exalt the humble and vindicate their trust in him. Now, this was very much true in the life of Hannah. And we don't have time to go back to chapter 1 and read all about it, but let me just bring some of those details back to your mind. Hannah was one of the two wives of an Ephraimite man named Elkanah. Hannah, though, was barren. She couldn't have any children, while her rival, the other wife, Penina, was able to have children and was bearing children for Elkanah. Penina frequently proudly provoked Hannah over this barrenness that Hannah had. And remember that barrenness was considered a great shame and a sign of divine disfavor in those days. But Hannah cries out to God in faith-filled prayer, and God hears Hannah's cry. He exalts Hannah. He vindicates her trust in Yahweh by giving her a son, whom she names Samuel. Samuel sounds like the Hebrew for God hears or God listens. Now, this theme of the proud versus the humble, like I said, it plays out again and again in 1 Samuel. And sometimes a, a person in the account, like King David, will experience both exaltation and humbling based on how that person is responding to God and walking before God. But we see it already at the beginning of this book, right even in Hannah's prayer. But do notice something else in the prayer. In verse 10, Hannah makes a reference to something that does not yet exist in Israel. She says that God will give strength to his king and will exalt the horn of his anointed. There's no king in Israel. Yet Hannah knows that a king is coming. 
God's specially anointed, especially empowered king will come to Israel. And this is another theme that we see in the books of Samuel. God will raise up and strengthen his chosen king. And this is something that Israel really needs because if we've been following along the narrative in the book of Judges, Israel needs someone to lead them in righteousness back to Yahweh. Every man is doing what's right in his own eyes. They need someone to lead them after the Lord. Now, this kind of sets the stage a little bit, but let's look at the state of the judgeship in Israel and even Israel's spiritual state, which we hear about next in chapter 2. In 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 to 17, we hear about the current judge, Eli, and his family. Let's see what it says about Eli. 1 Samuel 2, starting verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know Yahweh and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat... The priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, No, but you shall give it to me now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before Yahweh, for the men despised the offering of Yahweh. Oh boy. You may have been wondering as we've moved through the book of Judges, where are the priests in all this? What's going on with the tabernacle? What are God's specially chosen priests doing during all this downward spiral in Israel? Israel's turning to idolatry. What are the priests doing? Well, we get a bit of an answer here. Just some observations on this section of text. We see that Eli is both high priest and judge in Israel. He's one of those judge deliverers, one of those adjudicators in Israel. And here we see the sons of Eli are also serving as priests, but immediately we're told that these sons are worthless men. They do not know Yahweh. In fact, these two sons, and we hear their names later, Hophni and Phinehas, they've inaugurated two wicked practices when it comes to God's offerings. Notice the first part, they steal part of the boiled offerings with a three-pronged fork. Now, God did make provision in his law that some of the offerings would belong to the priest, part of the offerings, but it wasn't this provision. This is something that these sons have added on. And second, the sons demand part of the raw offerings even before the fat has been, even before the fat has been burned. Now, what's the big deal about the fat? Well, according to the law of Moses... The fat belongs to the Lord. All the fat is to be removed and burned on the altar as, a, as an offering to Yahweh. But here we're told the priests insist on taking the meat with the fat, and if the offerer refuses to give it up, the priest will take it by force. Verse 17 summarizes that these acts are very great sin before Yahweh, and they are signs of Eli's son's utter contempt for God's holy sacrifices. And you can just imagine what this must have been like for the worshipers coming to the tabernacle. They're looking to honor God. They want to worship God with these offerings. And they're seeing 
the priests themselves are full of greed and utter disregard for God's law. That would have been extremely discouraging, bewildering, demoralizing for the, the few in Israel who are actually trying to be faithful. I mean, if anybody should be following Yahweh faithfully, shouldn't it be God's priests? And after all, these are sons of a judge. Now, before telling us more, the author takes a quick aside in verses 18 to 21. I'll just summarize that briefly. There's another reference to Samuel. Samuel is dedicated by Hannah as a servant to Yahweh from his boyhood. After weaning him at about three years old, she basically drops him off at the tabernacle and says, Eli, he is going to be a servant to the Lord. He's actually been dedicated as a Nazarite, kind of like Samson was from his youth. And we're told in these verses that he is ministering before Yahweh every day. Hannah, his mother, continues to make garments for young Samuel, and God blesses Hannah with five more children. So there's a quick aside. But then in verse 22, we come back to Eli's sons. Verse 22 to 25, let's read a little bit more about them. Verse 22, it says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, the report is not good which I hear, Yahweh's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for Yahweh desired to put them to death. Whoa. We see here about Eli's sons, beyond their greedy desire for more meat, they're actually sleeping with the women who are ministering and serving at God's tabernacle. Sin is all over the tabernacle, and it starts with the priests, Eli's own sons. And this sin is not secret. All Israel knows about it, and Eli hears about it from Israel. All Yahweh's people are giving this report about Eli's sons. So Eli therefore confronts his sons, we see in the text. He warns them about the consequences of their sin before God, but they do not listen. And why not? The text says it's because God desired to put them to death. They would not, he would not let them repent and so be saved. Now this is not absolving them responsibility. Surely they also did not listen because they were proud and because they loved their own sin. This was also partly a judgment on God, a judgment from God. He was hardening their hearts. Now, I know we're kind of moving briskly as we have a lot of text to cover, but after this little section, the author gives us another aside regarding Samuel. Look at verse 26. Chapter 2, verse 26. It says, Now the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor both with Yahweh and with men. So notice, while Eli's sons, the priests, they're stealing meat, sleeping around, Samuel is growing up and growing in favor with God and men. Now, looking at these chapters thus far, we might, we might want to save Eli, well, his sons are bad, but Eli's decent. He's pretty good. After all, he rebuked his sons. They just wouldn't listen to him. I mean, I guess he's too old to do anything more, but at least he tried. At least he tried to set things right. 
Well, before we come to that conclusion, let's read the rest of chapter 2. Because God has a slightly different opinion of Eli. And he sends a special message to Eli via an unnamed prophet. Look at 1 Samuel 2, verses 27 to 36. It says, And a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering which I have commanded in my dwelling and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, Yahweh God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever. But now Yahweh declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling, in spite of all the good that I do for Israel. And an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die. But I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, Please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. Wow, this section is quite striking. Let's make some observations here. God, through this anonymous man of God, he first reminds Eli of something starting in verse 27. God reminds Eli that God chose Eli's house, that is, the house of Aaron, to minister as priests on behalf of Israel. This was an exalted position, but it is one that carried serious responsibilities. God then lays out a series of condemnations on Eli and Eli's house. Notice God uses the term you, yourselves. Eli is concluded in this. For what does God condemn Eli? For treating God's holy offerings with contempt, for honoring his sons above God, and for fattening himself along with his sons on the choicest part of the people's offerings. Now this is interesting because we just saw earlier in the chapter that Eli rebukes his sons. And yet what is Eli doing? He is eating of the same meat as his sons. The meat that did not belong to the priest. He tells his sons you shouldn't do that, but he's eating the meat too. And poignantly, in chapter 4, when we hear about the death of Eli, part of the reason why he dies is because he's old and, it says, heavy. He literally fattened himself up on meat that did not belong to him. And God rebukes him. And in verse 30, God pronounces a change to what was previously promised to Eli as a descendant of Aaron. God says, I said your house would walk before me forever, but God says, far be it from me to do this for you. And why? Because of the principle that God declares. And this is a very important principle for us to remember. 
Those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Isn't this exactly the same principle that we saw essentially presented in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2? God humbles the proud, but he exalts the humble. Those who honor God, he will honor, but those who treat him with contempt, God will cast them down. God is really trying to emphasize something to us today. We need to take that to heart. Starting in verse 31, God announces a curse on Eli's house, that is, his dynastic line. And this curse has several components. He says, first, that Eli's family's strength will be broken. There will be no old men left in it. They will all die in the prime of life. He also says that he will not completely cut off Eli's line, but rather than a mercy, the purpose of it appears to be so that Eli's family will never stop grieving. It says, Eli, you and those after you, they will never stop weeping. I'm not going to completely cut you off, but I'm going to keep on bringing tragedy to your family. And then he, God also gives a sign that this judgment will come to pass. And notice what the sign is. It's that both of Eli's sons will die on the same day. Now, that's not the judgment. That's part of the judgment. It's a sign that the judgment will come to pass. He says this will be the sign. God also says that he's going to raise up a new faithful priest who will have an enduring house, that is, an enduring lineage. Unlike the broken lineage that we're going to see happen with Eli's house, there's going to be a different priest with a new and lasting lineage. And God says, this priest will be there to walk before my anointed always. And there's that term anointed again. Who is God's anointed? Well, that's actually the term from what we from where we get Messiah from. This is another reference to God's king. He says, this priest, this new priest I'm going to raise up, he's going to walk before my anointed king. And when this happened, God says, anyone left in Eli's house will come begging to this new priest for food, for money, or for a position to fill. Now, notice what Eli's reaction is to all of this. Actually, you can't really notice it because we don't hear about it. It's not presented. What did he think of this? What did he say to Yahweh? We're not told. But let's observe one more section having to do with Eli and his sons before we take a step back and ask some interpretation questions. Look at chapter 3, and we'll read the whole chapter going to the first verse of chapter 4. Chapter 3, we start again with a reference to Samuel. It says, now the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh before Eli, and word from Yahweh was rare in those days, visions were infrequent. It happened at that time as Eli was lying down in his place, now his eyesight had begun to grow dim and he could not see well, and the lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh where the ark of God was. That Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. Yahweh called yet again, Samuel. So Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he answered, I did not call, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, nor had the word of Yahweh yet been revealed to him. So Yahweh called Samuel again for the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am, for you called me. Then Eli discerned that Yahweh was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down. 
And it shall be, if he calls you, then you shall say, Speak, Yahweh, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. Then Yahweh came and stood and called as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant is listening. Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which both ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. In that day I will carry out against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. For I have told him that I am about to judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knew, because his sons brought a curse on themselves, and he did not rebuke them. Therefore I have sworn to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. So Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh, but Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. Then Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. He said, What is the word that he spoke to you? Please do not hide it from me. May God do so to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me of all the words that he spoke to you. So Samuel told him everything, and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. Then Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and let none of his words fail. All Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, because Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Thus, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Let's observe this last passage. We see Samuel's again ministering before Yahweh. We're also told that supernatural words from Yahweh are infrequent in these days. And Samuel and Eli are both lying down to sleep while the lamp of God is burning. So this is at night. And the lamp of God is, of course, the golden lampstand of the tabernacle. Appears that Samuel is sleeping nearby this lamp in the tabernacle or in the tabernacle complex. And notice to whom the Lord supernaturally calls out. He doesn't call out to Eli. He calls out to Samuel. But Samuel thinks that Eli is calling him. And the text tells us why. Because Samuel did not yet know Yahweh. And Yahweh, the word of Yahweh, had not yet been revealed to Samuel. Three times God calls Samuel, and each time Samuel goes running to Eli, Eli tells Samuel at first, just go back to bed. But by the third time, he realizes that God is calling Samuel. Eli tells Samuel next time to ask God to speak. And so the fourth time that God calls Samuel, Samuel responds as Eli instructed. And notice the message that God gives to Samuel. God tells Samuel he is about to fulfill his judgment on the house of Eli. And he reiterates to Samuel why this judgment is coming down. It's because Eli knew the evil of his sons, but he did not rebuke them. In the morning, Samuel's afraid to tell Eli the vision, and you can understand why. But Eli commands Samuel to share everything, or else may God curse Samuel. So Samuel tells Eli everything. And notice Eli's reaction here. This time we do get his reaction. He says, let Yahweh do what seems good to him. In other words, Eli accepts God's judgment. And then told, God continues to be with Samuel, confirms him as a prophet in Israel, and we're also told that God appears to Samuel at the tabernacle in Shiloh. And it's because Samuel was there. 
Well, we've looked at a lot of text, but let's bring all these details we've observed together and try and answer some questions of interpretation. Remember, when we do the inductive Bible study method, we're first just looking to observe the basic details of the text, and then we try and answer questions that are not explicitly answered by the text, but based on the details we can come to accurate conclusions on, or at least probable conclusions. So here's the first question that we want to consider. In chapter 2, we see Eli rebuking his sons. But in chapter 3, God says judgment is coming down on Eli for not rebuking his sons. Wait a second, is this a contradiction? How are we to reconcile this? Well, from what God says to Eli about his fattening himself up on the food, we can see that Eli's rebuke was what? It was superficial. This is not a true rebuke. When his sons did not repent, Eli did nothing else. I mean, based on what they were doing in Israel, they deserved to be put to death. But Eli didn't do that. He didn't do anything to punish them, nor even remove them from the priesthood. Rather, Eli partook in the results of their sin. So he did not truly rebuke them. It was just a superficial rebuke. Thus, Eli is rebuked by God. Here's another question. When Eli hears for a second time that God's judgment on him and his house is coming, he simply accepts it. But is this a righteous response? Or should Eli have acted differently? What do you think? You can type an answer in the chat box. Is it righteous merely to accept the judgment of God? We'll consider some other examples in Scripture where certain persons are told that judgment is coming, and then they react by repentance. Think of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, right? God says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. But the people of Nineveh repented, and what did God do? He relented of the judgment. He spared them. And we even see that with some of the wicked kings in Judah and Israel. God says, judgment's coming down in your house. And all of a sudden, what do they do? They repent and humble themselves before God. And God says, have you seen the way this guy is humbled? Humbled himself? And God relents of the judgment, or he postpones the judgment. I mean, even if God didn't change the judgment, if you truly love God and you want to honor him, you don't just continue in sin. When God says, hey, judgment is coming down on you because of your sin, you don't just say, oh, okay, I accept that. No, you repent of your sin. Why? Why would you continue in the sin that God is going to judge you for? So, this resignation of Eli, this acceptance of God's judgment, I, I don't think we should see this as a righteous response. You say, oh, you know, he's submitting to Yahweh. I don't think so. This is someone who's, even when he's told that judgment is coming, is not willing to change the situation. Part of it maybe is that he's not super able, but he doesn't even seem to be willing. This is not a response that we want to emulate. Another question? Oh yeah, yeah. some of you also mentioned other sections, like when uh, David mourned and prayed, when he was told that his son would die, and he pleaded for God's mercy. I didn't give it there, but that was a righteous response. And sometimes God does show mercy because, right, just as, as Steve is saying, God is a merciful God. Now here's another question. Why does the account keep switching back and forth between Eli and Samuel? 
Well, certainly is to present that contrast, right? You see Eli and his house being unfaithful, but Samuel is being faithful to Yahweh. And what is God doing for Samuel? He's exalting him before the people. He confirms him as a prophet. He's now giving his word to Samuel and not Eli. I mean, that's kind of a big deal, right? You're the judge, you're the high priest, but God says, I'm not giving my word to you anymore. I'm going to give it to this little kid. I'm going to raise him up. This is to present that contrast between the humble that God exalts and the proud that God casts down. And isn't this exactly... Sorry, I just uh, did something on my screen here. Isn't this exactly what we were seeing from Hannah's song? We're seeing that, that principle being lived out in the lives of the people of these, these chapters. Chapters 2, 3, and 4. Eli and his unfaithful house are being cast down while Samuel is being raised up as a faithful and humble prophet and judge before God. Now, one other question before we move on. Who is the faithful priest that God says he's going to raise up? Now, immediately we might want to say, oh, well, Samuel, clearly. Look, God's casting down Eli and he's bringing up Samuel. Samuel must be the faithful priest. But it doesn't really fit with the details of the text. Because if we go back to 1 Samuel 1.1, we're told that Samuel's father is an Ephraimite. He's not a Levite. He's not even, or yeah, he's not from the, the line of Aaron, and he's not even a Levite. Now, it's true, 1 Chronicles 6 does mention several El Elkanahs who are in the line of Levi, but there's no indication that that's the same Elkanah. There's, there's actually a bunch of them in, in the genealogies there. Sorry, that might be 2 Chronicles. Uh, but even there, and really throughout the scriptures, there is no reference to Samuel being in the line of priests or his sons being the line of priests. So it's probably not a reference to Samuel. Samuel does have an important role to play before Yahweh and the people of Israel, but his role seems to be more like Moses' role rather than Aaron's role. He certainly is able to offer sacrifices and do various things that sometimes only priests can do, but he's not himself a priest or raising up a line of priests. So not Samuel. Now, Maybe, then, the reference is to Jesus Christ. Isn't Jesus Christ a faithful high priest? And isn't he raised up instead of the line of Aaron? Well, that's true. And we do praise the Lord for this new priesthood in the order of Melchizedek that God raises up. Then our faithful high priest, a sympathetic high priest, as the New Testament expounds. But, again, the details of the text don't really fit with Jesus being the faithful high priest. Because... What does God foretell about this priest that he's going to raise up? It says, this priest will walk before my anointed. Wait a second. He's saying that the king and the priest are going to be two separate people. The Messiah, God's anointed king, is going to have this faithful priest walking before him. That doesn't fit with Jesus. He is the king. He is the prophet. He is the priest. He's all of those. So Jesus doesn't really fit as an answer either. So who then is the faithful high priest that God has in mind? Well, we'll come back to that question because it has to do with the fulfillment of the judgment on the house of Eli. Now, I'd really like to go through the next three chapters with you, but we're already kind of moving quickly through these texts, and we don't have time to go through each of these three chapters. I, again, recommend you do this on your own. But just let me 
summarize what happens next. What's the aftermath of what we've seen in 1 Samuel 1 to 4? Well, in chapter 4, as we read through that chapter, we see Israel finds itself at war again with the Philistines. Now, we saw them with Samson. They were oppressing part of Israel. They had subjugated part of Israel. This is still that same time period. Israel goes to battle against the Philistines, but they're defeated. 4,000 Israelites die in the battle against the Philistines. And if we look at 1 Samuel 4, verses 3 and 4, we see the people react by saying, Oh man, why has Yahweh defeated us before the Philistines? And that's a great question to ask. But they don't really answer that question, at least not in a way that is biblical and helpful. They say, let's go get the ark. Let's go get the ark so we can make sure that we're victorious. I mean, the ark is the place of God's presence. If we've got God with us, then surely we will win the battle against the Philistines. So Hophni and Phinehas actually come from Shiloh with the ark. They bring it to the battlefield. All Israel rejoices, and they are sure they're going to win the next day. And the Philistines, when they hear about it, they are trembling. They are cowering. They say, oh man, their, their gods have come into their camp. How are we ever going to beat them? But what's the result of the battle? So we continue on in 1 Samuel 4. When Israel returns to the battle, they're massacred. 30,000 Israelites die. Hophni and Phinehas die. And the ark is captured. Talk about a reversal of what Israel expected. Eli, back in Shiloh, he's anxious for news about the battle and especially news about the ark. And when a messenger comes and gives the message, or gives the news to Eli, what happens? Well, Eli falls off his seat, breaks his neck, and dies. Even Eli's pregnant daughter-in-law, when she hears that Eli has died on top of all these other calamities, even the death of her husband, and that the ark has been captured, she's so traumatized that she immediately goes into labor. She even dies in childbirth, but not before naming her new son Ichabod, which means something like no glory, because she says the glory has departed from Israel. I mean, this really must have felt like the end of the world for Israelites. I mean, totally defeated in battle. All these people have died. The judge has died. The ark is gone. Yahweh's presence is no longer with his people. What's going to happen to us? And certainly the Philistines were exulting in their triumph. Our gods are superior to the God of Israel. But God was going to make sure that Philistines didn't get the wrong message. We won't go through it, but God sovereignly arranges circumstances, even via miraculous judgments and plagues. He arranges that the ark does return to Israel. Temporarily captured, but soon in 1 Samuel 5 and 6, returned to the land of Israel. But more importantly, in 1 Samuel 7, Samuel, who's now all grown up, he brings the people of Israel together and he says, Brothers, it's time to repent. It's time to repent before God. And if you do, he will deliver you from the Philistines. Put away these false gods. Serve Yahweh alone. Humble yourselves before Yahweh. Repent and serve him only. And he will vindicate your trust. And that's what the people do. And so what happens? Israel is delivered from the Philistines. And thus we see that same cycle that we've seen throughout the Judges period playing out again. The people sin, turn away from Yahweh, God sends an oppressor, the people repent, and then God 
raises up a judge to deliver the people from that oppressor. And that's exactly what we see happening with Samuel. And all this is related to that theme of when you humble yourself before God, he will, in due time, vindicate and exalt you. He will provide just as he promised. But if you stubbornly continue in sin in your own way before God, God will cast you down, just like he cast down Eli and Eli's sons, and even all Israel, because they would not follow Yahweh. But with the death of Eli's sons, is God's prophecy against the house of Eli totally fulfilled? Well, remember, the death of the sons on the same day was just the sign of the prophecy coming to pass. That was just kind of like uh, the appetizer. It was just the first indication that these things will all come to pass. Where do we see God's curse totally fulfilled? And even the faithful priest that replaces them appear. Well, as we move on in the scripture, well, let me summarize a number of events. We're kind of going to move through a number of books just so that you see the end of this prophecy. God's word is fulfilled in due time. Eli's descendants do continue to serve as priests, but a certain man arises by the name of David. Yes, that's eventual King David. But David, one day fleeing from Saul, he stops at the residence of a certain high priest named Ahimelech, who is a descendant of Eli. David asks Ahimelech for help. Ahimelech complies. But when the king of Israel, Saul, hears about how Ahimelech aided David, Saul wickedly kills Ahimelech and Ahimelech's whole household. In fact, he puts the whole city of Nob, which was a city where the, these priests lived, he puts the whole city to the sword. Only one man of Ahimelech's line, which is also Eli's line, escapes. And that's a man by the name of Abiathar. Abiathar and another man, who's also from the line of Aaron, but not from the line of Eli, Zadok, they follow David. And they serve David faithfully as priests in the kingship of David. But at the end of David's reign, Abiathar decides to endorse David's son Adonijah as king instead of the one that David had chosen, Solomon. This was essentially a treasonous act. And when Solomon becomes king, he dismisses Abiathar. And I want you to see how this happens. Look at 1 Kings 2, 1 Kings 2 verse 26. Solomon is addressing Abiathar, and notice what it says, 1 Kings 2.26. Then to Abiathar the priest, the king said, Go to Anathoth to your own field, for you deserve to die. But I will not put you to death at this time, because you carried the ark of the Lord Yahweh before my father David, and because you were afflicted in everything in which my father was afflicted. Notice verse 27. So Solomon dismissed Abiathar from being the priest, from being priest of Yahweh, in order to fulfill the word of Yahweh, which he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. Wow, this is many years later after the prophecy given to Eli, after that curse. And yet, God's word comes to pass in due time. The house of Eli is totally devastated by Saul, but not destroyed. And later, Eli's descendant Abiathar is officially dismissed from the priesthood by Solomon. And it's here where we see the faithful priest appear, the replacement. Because who is it that Solomon appoints? What line to replace Abiathar and Eli's line in the priesthood? The only other priestly line that's serving at the time. 
and that's the line of Zadok. God confirms Zadok in the scriptures as a faithful priest and even as a faithful line of priests. And God even promises, in kind of an astounding way, that when the eschatological kingdom comes to Israel, when God restores the kingdom to Israel, he promises that the sons of Zadok will again minister as priests. Ezekiel 44, Ezekiel 44 verses 15 to 16 says, says this, speaking of the future, But the Levitical priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the sons of Israel went astray from me, shall come near to me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer me the fat and the blood, declares the Lord Yahweh. They shall enter my sanctuary, they shall come near to my table to minister to me, and keep my charge. There you see it. God confirms, even when all of Israel was not being faithful to Yahweh, the sons of Zadok were being faithful to Yahweh. And God says, I'll remember that, and I will make sure to exalt you when I restore the kingdom to Israel. Now, there are certainly some details of that that we don't fully understand, because we have the high priesthood of Christ and the fulfilled work at Calvary, and yet God says Zadok has an important place in the future. And this is all in fulfillment of that basic principle that we heard God himself declare, those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. It is God who has the power to raise up and the power to cast down. And God delights. It is his joy. It is his delight to exalt the humble and humble the proud. So you're seeing that main theme today. And certainly that's going to have an important application for us. But can we get more specific? How can we apply, as we look at the beginning of 1 Samuel here, the lives of Samuel and Eli, how can we specifically apply this text? Because, of course, that is the, the last part of Bible study that we always need to include. Observe, interpret, and then apply. Well, that's something for you to continue to think about, but let me give you three suggested applications based on what we've observed and what we've concluded from the text we've looked at today. First, surely God's Spirit is instructing us from this text that we need to live humbly before God. Eli and his sons lived in a way that was wise in their own eyes. They thus treated with contempt the commands of God. They paid no attention to them. They didn't care if they violated them again and again. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we do the same? Even though, well, I'll, I'll speak it in a way that you need to speak to yourself, even though you know that what you're doing is wrong, do you continue to do it? Because after all, you haven't really felt the consequences of it yet. Nobody else knows about it. There hasn't been any big calamities in your life. So what's the big deal? I'll just continue doing what I want to do. If that's been your attitude, then, dear friend, I ask you to remember, realize that your sin will be found out by God. He already knows about it. He's keeping a, a firm record of it. And judgment will come eventually when God determines it should. God has been patient with you, but God sees your sin, and he will call you to account. So learn the lesson of this text. Don't remain stubborn and proud. Humble yourself before God. Repent of your sins. 
believe in Jesus Christ as your king and as your total substitutionary savior. He's the only one who can make things right between you and God. You can't do it. None of your good works can do it. If you will humble yourself before God and pursue him in faithful obedience, what will God do? Remember what he said, those who honor me, I will honor. God will raise you up at the right time. God will provide for you as you need. And God will grant you everlasting life with him forever. This is the inheritance that comes to the humble. And isn't that exactly what Jesus says in the Beatitudes? The Spirit is telling us we need to walk, live humbly before God. That's certainly a main application from our text. Here's another one. And I'm going alliterative here. Live humbly before God, but also love your brethren enough to confront sin. We often think that it's loving to just overlook the sins of others. And in a certain respect, it is. In certain certain contexts, uh, a prudent man overlooks an insult, the Proverbs say. But it is not loving to overlook ongoing and heinous sins. It's actually selfish arrogance. Isn't that exactly what Eli was doing? He gave a superficial rebuke, but never really dealt with this sin that was taking place right in the priesthood. And think about the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they had this man who was committing gross immorality in their midst. And Paul says, why didn't you confront and deal with this man? Instead, what do you do? He says, you boast in your arrogance. They were boasting about it somehow. Maybe boasting that they were so loving and so tolerant. But he says, you shouldn't have done that. That wasn't the loving thing to do. That wasn't the righteous thing to do. Instead, you should have done what God called you to do, which is pursue the process of confrontation as described in Matthew 18. Now, it's true. As the scriptures say, love covers a multitude of sins. But how does it do so? James 5.20 actually clarifies that the way that happens is by confrontation and repentance. He who goes after someone who has gone astray, it says, James says, let that person know that he saves his soul from death and covers a multitude of sins. You want to see people's sin covered? Then help them to repent. Then their sins will be covered before God. Don't just sweep it under the rug before man. Help that person be reconciled to God. I see Mark's comment there. We should, as Christians, ex expect that we're going to need reproof from time to time. We know the deceitfulness of the flesh, the deceitfulness of sin. Certainly many righteous persons in the scriptures were in need of reproof. Think of Peter, think of David, and they were grateful for it when they received it. And when we give reproof, and even when we receive it, it needs to be with that humble attitude. Of course, there's a way of uh, coming all high and mighty against somebody or in an unloving fashion. And that that doesn't really lead to effective reproof. That doesn't really help someone be restored. But we do need to do the hard work of corporate sanctification, not just individual. Say, oh, I don't know what they're doing, but I'm going to try and follow God. Well, that's good, but you need to worry about them too because you're connected to them. You're part of the same body. Ask yourselves, do you love your brethren enough to care about the damage that sin does to them? And to others. 
No sin stays isolated, especially in the church. Paul says, again, in 1 Corinthians 5, don't you know a little leaven leavens a whole lump of dough? If we ignore sin, everyone suffers for it. So then, will we pursue the necessary hard conversations that will help one another overcome besetting sins? And this isn't going to always be a one-time thing. Sometimes it is. Sometimes you, you go to that person, express your concern, and they say, oh, thank you. You know what? I need to, re- I need to repent. Thanks for, thanks for coming to me. And they change. But a lot of times they need more ongoing help. They're going to need your regular discipleship. They're going to need your accountability. So are you willing to do that? Are you willing to receive that? Such is what it means to walk humbly before God. May God never have to rebuke us like he rebuked Eli saying, You were aware of ongoing sin, and yet you did nothing about it. Or you just acted superficially. May God not rebuke us that way. One other application to bring to your attention. Live humbly before God. Love your brethren enough to confront sin. But I believe the Spirit is also directing us to understand from our text, look forward to God's vindication. God announces a number of prophetic words in our passage, and we see them come to pass. God's judgment on Eli's house came to pass, just as God promised. And God's word of blessing came to pass on the house of Zadok, just as God promised. In a similar way, for God's people, His promises of blessing, provision, deliverance, they will come to pass for his people at the right time. But do you believe this? Do we believe this? And quarantine is a, a time where we definitely have to te- we test, we're tested as to whether we believe that. Because what do we have to do in quarantine? We got to wait. And waiting is fundamentally a time of testing because the longer we wait, the more we're tempted to become discontent, to doubt, and to complain. We get tired of the virus, tired of the lockdown, tired of people not following the guidelines and getting away with it. But don't you believe that God knows what he's doing? God knows your needs. He's put you in this circumstance exactly as he intended. Don't you believe that he's promised to take care of you through the trial? Yes, he'll deliver you from the trial at the right time, but he has a purpose in it. So do you trust that he will provide for you through the trial? Whatever happens. Therefore, you must, we must trust, obey, proceed by faith. God will fulfill his word at the proper time. Look forward to it. Believe in it. Don't get angry. Don't get impatient. Don't get fearful. That's not what God's people do. Humble yourself before Yahweh. It is a humbling thing to submit and wait. Yes, do what you can do when it's righteous. But when you can't do anything else, wait. Wait on the Lord. Wait for God's good promises to come to pass because they will. Yahweh is a covenant-keeping God. He is a faithful God, and he will keep his word. So those are some three applications. And of course, there are more, so I hope that you will continue to meditate on them today and throughout this week. Now that's all for my lesson. 
I've got a couple of minutes left here. So if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to offer based on what you've heard me say today or based on the text that we've looked at in 1 Samuel, please feel free to put it in the chat. Or you can send me an email at davkaposha at gmail.com and I'll do my best to interact with you about that over email. But of course, thank you so much for joining me today in our study of 1 Samuel. We're going to continue in Samuel for a little while. Next time, we're going to talk about how Israel demands from their judge, demands from Samuel, a king. In one sense, this is what everybody's been waiting for. Yes, Israel needs a king. And yet God says, the way you're asking for it is unrighteous. You are committing great sin by asking for a king. And we'll talk about how those two seemingly contradictory truths interact. I'm going to close our time formally with prayer, and then I'll, I'll interact uh, in the chat if any of you are interested in doing so. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is, it is a word that, Lord, we know necessarily needs to humble us. Lord, this is something that we so easily forget. We do become exalted in our own view of ourselves. We think about maybe all the good that we do for your kingdom or all the hard work that we do, and then we say, well, don't I deserve, don't I deserve this circumstance to be different? Don't I deserve comfort? Don't I deserve uh, a little time to enjoy some idols? We think these things, even if we don't express them. But Lord, forgive us for where we do so. Lord, your word reminds us that the way to blessing, the way of life and joy is by walking humbly before you, not stubbornly in sin, not in that entitlement attitude, not in that arrogance before you. Lord, we need to remain serious about sin, both in our own lives and in our church, in the body. Not as policemen, but as those who love one another and are concerned for the damage and the rot that sin brings. Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious to save and sanctify those who have listened today. Lord, it is so blessed to walk before you in humility, but keep us there. And Lord, we know that trials are part of what do that. So Lord, help us to learn from the trials what we need to learn. Lord, as they continue in worship at Calvary today, I pray, Lord, that you would bless the pastor as he preaches and those others who lead the worship and minister in other ways. I pray, Lord, that we continue to be transformed by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for being here, and if you have anything you'd like to share in the chat, please do so. I'll, I'll hang around for a little bit. Otherwise, I'll see you next time.